0: You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. I want to invite you now, as is our custom, as we walk through a book of the Bible together, we're going to wrap up our time in the seventh chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. So if you don't have a Bible, do me a favor, you'll see a blue paperback Bible in the, in the seat in front of you in that same rack, and we would love to make that our gift to you if you don't have a Bible. And uh, if you don't have an app or a device that'll get you there, please let, let that even be a gift to someone that maybe you know who doesn't have a Bible. But join us. Don't be afraid of the table of contents. Join us as we open up the Bible here and, and pick up in the Sermon on the Mount where we've left off this last Week. And so I believe we've taken about 15 weeks up to this point through these three chapters Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are what the, we would say is the most famous oratory ever recorded. That is the Sermon on the Mount, the, the words of Jesus here is teaching. And, and what Matthew introduces us to us as the, as the opening act. This is the first public discourse that Matthew tells us about. And and he's telling us this for a reason. So to, to kind of refresh your memory, Matthew has been introducing us to Jesus and who he is and, and what he's like and what he's done for us. And he he starts his opening chapter by or this opening section of the book of Matthew is his good news of who Jesus is by telling us about this most famous moment where Jesus, like Moses of old, came down from a mountain to deliver God's law and instruction and word for his people. It, it, is, it serves as a, what we would say is like the norms of the kingdom that he's been preaching, namely that he's come to say that there's good news, that, that, the, that the king and authority that is over you that is often unjust and corrupt and and, and will send you to die for their own political causes is, is temporary. There is a kingdom that has now come that Jesus is announcing and telling us it is really good news. Good news, because this king that has come isn't going to send you to die for his political causes. This king is going to come and lay down his own life so that you and I would know life abundant. And so this, this King Jesus is telling us about this kingdom, so that those of us who are his followers, who would call ourselves Christian, would know what it's like to live under the reign and rule of this kingdom. He gives us a picture for, for certain things that, that are applicable and instructive for us even now, but also a picture, a dream, if you will, of what it will look like when all the evil is abolished from the world. All of sin and suffering have been eradicated from the world as he returns to reign over all things, finally. So, in this conclusion to this Sermon on the Mount, we're going to spend our time this morning in verse 21 through the end of the chapter, verse 29. And as I've shared with you before, uh, there's a beautiful mystery that takes place. We open the Bible, uh, but what really happens here is that the Bible begins to open us. It begins to speak authoritatively to us, provoke us even, as we'll see here. And so I want you to join me there at the, the last chunk of Matthew 7, the, the last part of the Sermon on the Mount. A word of encouragement, as I said, for the last several weeks is a really good news for you. This is the most famous and influential and powerful sermon ever preached, ever recorded. And so this morning, on one hand, uh, you get to hear the greatest sermon ever preached, because I'm going to read right out of it. On the other hand, we get to jump in with one of the most expounded upon and analyzed and studied texts. We get to jump into uh, the teaching of Jesus that has been meditated upon for centuries. So, beginning in verse 21 all the way to the end of this sermon. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, and not as their scribes. I pray this morning we'd be astonished by the very words of Jesus. Last week, I warned you that his words in the previous passage will offend or provoke intentionally anyone in the room who is not a Christian. If you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, last week was a provocative series of teachings where Jesus says that there are only two paths. There, there is a narrow path that leads to life, and there is a broad path. So contrary to popular opinion, there, there's not a plurality of paths that all end in the same place. Instead, Jesus says, there are two ways to be, there are two ways to live. And the, in this essence, or the essence of what he's teaching, he says later, we'll, we'll have fruit to it that will reveal its nature. Either a narrow path that leads to life or a broad path, a, a, popular path that leads to destruction. While this Sunday, we're in a passage in which Jesus, don't worry if you were offended last week, intentionally provokes and offends all the people who would call themselves Christian. So if you're in this room and maybe you wouldn't call yourself a believer, I want you to, as I said last week, be provoked, be intentionally challenged by Jesus. Take him at his words. Take seriously this most famous, most influential person who have ever walked the planet and what he says. He says. But then if you're in this room, and maybe like Jesus would probably probably imply here, you've come into this room, and maybe you would call yourself a Christian. Maybe you would say, I, I believe in Jesus. I, I love these teachings of Jesus. Then Jesus is saying, you probably have lulled yourself into an unnecessary comfort, out of which he means to provoke you. So, brace yourself. I think what we find in these three sections a picture of what it looks like to not know Jesus. You kind of see not knowing Jesus in verse 21 through 23. And then you get a picture of knowing Jesus in verse 24 through 27. And then we get this brief glimpse into how to tell the difference in the last two verses. So to kind of organize our thoughts and hopefully to help you remember this conclusion to this most famous sermon and what he means to provoke us into thinking and believing, we don't talk about not knowing Jesus. What does it look like and mean to not really know and not really believe, to not really have, as he says, a life, a a, a narrow but yet fruitful life-filled path? Then he describes what it looks like to know him, to have an abundant life, and then if you find yourself going, well, how do I know, then... It's pretty powerful at the very end of this sermon. Matthew knows you and I are going to ask that question, and he explains it for us in the last two verses. So the Sermon on the Mount has been a massive and dense amount of powerful, pithy, insightful, and wise sayings of Jesus. And yet at its conclusion, we find a stark, I would call, crisis. That is, there, there's a there is this sense in which if you've come up to this point in the sermon on the mount and you are not yet provoked Jesus is landing the plane here he's concluding his thoughts and and wrapping up what he's been teaching with a moment of crisis in which you and I are forced by Jesus he doesn't let anyone off the hook you are forced by Jesus to take one way or the other to either respond in the affirmative to to receive what he has to say or to reject it altogether he doesn't he doesn't give any room for anything else and so He's, up to this point, given us a picture of, of two different ways of receiving it. Last week we saw there's, there's, there's two different paths that we might be on. There's no in-between. There's two different trees that, that are ultimately, they look the same, but then later on their fruit reveals what they're really rooted in, their real identity. And then here we see that now there are two different ways to come to Jesus, and then two different houses, he says that are proven by the storm. As if to say, if, if you find yourself going like, man, I've really enjoyed the Sermon on the Mount, and maybe, maybe if you haven't been here, you, you chose a really great Sunday to join us because you get in this Sunday, in many ways, what many people for the last 15 weeks have been building up towards. Good for you, good timing. But if you find yourself saying, that's really interesting. I love these teachings of Jesus. Let me ponder that for a bit. Jesus says, that's not how... You respond to my words. So, Jesus has punctuated this sermon all along the way with pretty powerful, broad statements. He demands that you, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect in chapter 5. Later, he says that you can serve only one master, you cannot serve God and money. Do you hear it building up to the kind of this, this point and concluding? call to decisiveness, it even says that you must seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and then there's all these other things that we would have anxiety about. These things will fall into place in chapter 6. And so what we have here is not another policy statement, but a plea to discern the difference between a nominal contemplation or, or even a, a superficial adherence to what Jesus is saying versus a full and complete devotion to his teaching and who he is. So, not knowing Jesus, look at verse twenty-one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who, who comes to Jesus and says, You are Lord, not just Lord, but Lord, Lord, but he says, But instead it's the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, this, this should sound familiar if you were here last week. The language of doing and not doing, the, the, the language of you will either do this or not do this is found all throughout this last conclusion, this concluding section, right? Here's the one who does them, verse 24, same section, or, or same, same tone, different section. Everyone who then hears these words of mine and does them versus everyone who, a few verses later, hears these words of mine and does not do them. So, He's saying there is a response. You will respond in a certain way, and what you do and your actions will be evidence of your response. So, the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven, that's the one who he says, verse 22, on that day will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name, and I will declare to them, I never knew you. And it gets worse. These people who apparently were believing and doing all of these mighty things, it's not just that, hey, I, you know, we used to be pals, right? We used to be close, but we had a falling out. You hear what he says? I never even knew you. We never had a relationship. And these people who were doing what seemed to be pious things, like good and, and acceptable things that benefited the people around them, I, I suspect. He calls them, Did you did you catch that? Like, Hey, now you missed the mark, right? You did good things, but not enough. Did you hear what he calls their acts of piety? He calls them workers of lawlessness. So let's kind of unpack some of those things. I think you see, uh, most commentators would, would point out, there's, there's at least three important aspects to these people who come to Jesus and cry, Lord, Lord, to him. One, and again, all three of these things should offend and provoke, if not terrify, many in the room who you would call yourself a Christian. One, they seem to have sound doctrine. Listen to how they come to Jesus. They come to Jesus and call him Lord. This is, remember, this is a powerful word that's used in this particular culture that, in a way that would only typically be reserved for Caesar himself, that you would only look up to a person of great authority and call them Lord. And they come to Jesus and they see his authority and say, Lord. Jesus is imagining a time when these people who have the right understanding of Jesus, oh, Jesus, he's the Lord. They would understand him as God, representing in some divine way God himself. And they came to him and said, Lord, Lord. And so notice the, the first provocative thing he tells us is that these people have sound doctrine. They believe rightly about Jesus. Second thing, they have a passionate fervor for him. Did you hear what he says there? They're going to come and they're going to say, Lord. Lord. Now, this kind of repetition is throughout the entirety of the Bible, right? You can hear David, uh, the, the archetype king of the Old Testament, representing this, this period of God's faithfulness and providence over his people, and he loses his son as a, as a judgment against him, and he cries out, not Absalom, Absalom, Absalom. You hear him crying out, right? You can hear the psalmist as well as Jesus. Psalm 22 and, and the end... Of the story here where Jesus is hanging on the cross and he cries out, My God, my God. Do you hear the passion and the repetition there? You can even hear as Jesus comes to Mary and Martha, we'll see later, and says, Martha, Martha. So not only do they have sound doctrine, they see Jesus as Lord, they have passionate fervor for Him. Not just Lord, but Lord, Lord! Seriously, not just Lord. Lord, Lord, you are Lord, but not just Lord. I'm, you're Lord, and I'm passionate about you being Lord. And the third provocative thing is they have evidently pretty profound evidence of personal piety. That is that they, they seem to be doing the kinds of things that, that, as we see for the rest of the Gospel of Matthew and the rest of the New Testament, that Jesus would send his apostles and disciples out to do. He said, Lord, Lord. Did we not prophesy in your name? Saying words of prophetic, uh, prophetic wisdom in Jesus' name, that sounds like something we would want to do. Casting out demons, well, that's helping the afflicted, the oppressed by the demonic, that sounds pretty awesome. And even do mighty works, powerful works in your name, all of it in your name. So not only do they have sound doctrine, they see Jesus as Lord, not only evidently do they have passionate fervor for Jesus, they also have a pretty impressive resume. They have been serving Jesus in a passionate way, and and they even have fruit of it. Many, I I think many in the room would agree, even more than maybe many of us would have ever done. I've never seen some of these things happen. I've never gotten to cast out a demon. I'm not sure I would even say, like, I've... I I did mighty works in Jesus' name. I don't don't even think I would say that. And yet it was those people with sound doctrine, passionate fervor, and a pretty impressive religious resume that Jesus says, I don't even recognize you. We're strangers. Get out of my face, you lawless person." Here's one of the most provocative things that he begins with about not knowing Jesus. The absence of piety demonstrates that you do not know Jesus. But here's the provocative part. And yet the presence of piety does not guarantee that you know Jesus. Now, this shouldn't surprise us. Up to this point, he hasn't been comparing people who are living lawless, irreligious lives to... To people who are living supposedly pious and religious lives. Remember, he he says the problem isn't that differentiation. The problem is the people who who are trying to do this, and he calls them hypocrites. He's not talking about those those who don't give to the poor and those who do. He says, no, no, I'm talking about the people who do give to the poor, but they're actually just trying to get something from it. He didn't say there's, there's a difference. He didn't even draw a contrast between the people who fast and those who don't fast. He says there's people who do fast, and they think that their fasting gives them merit before God and before others. And he doesn't even, didn't, he didn't even uh, in the Lord's Prayer, doesn't kind of provoke the, uh, a differentiation between people who are praying and those who are not praying. He's provoking the people who are praying, but actually just trying to get something from others by the way they pray or get something from God by the way they pray. So this shouldn't shock you. These kinds of people, it's not that they, there's like these two groups of people. There's like the good religious people and then the awful irreligious people. He says there's two different paths and those, those. that isn't it. Instead, there are two different ways of being. One, in which you know and are known by Jesus and one, in which you are a stranger to Jesus and cast out from his presence. So, notice. <laughs> he is... Saying something powerful that ought to provoke everyone in this room who might call themselves a person of faith. I want to be very careful here. Think of it this way I don't want to unnecessarily stir up doubt in you, I don't want to unnecessarily fuel doubt in you. And yet, at the same time, Jesus says there evidently isn't a necessary amount of doubt that he prods at directly. Because you can say all of these things, but, but evidently there's, there's a way to do all of these things. to As they would say, believe rightly, to have, be passionate about the right things, and even live the right kind of way, and yet not, did you catch that here? Be doing the will of the Father. Evidently, there's a way to believe rightly that has more to do with being right than it has to do with knowing God. Right? You, you know this in any meaningful relationship. You can know facts about a person accurate facts about a person who is a complete stranger to you, right? Pick the the celebrity that grabs your interest the most, right? You you know more about them than frankly, let's be honest, than you should, right? This person, you you don't know them. You never will. I'm sorry to burst your bubble, but you know a lot about them. And and sometimes there's a way that you can be deceived into thinking that you know the facts about them, and that, that passes as knowing them personally. And so their words have maybe more weight than they should. There's a way to think rightly, and in this case, like even to be passionate about the right things in a way that still maintains control of our own lives. There's a way to do all these things on the surface that might look good, but under the surface, Jesus says, are evidence that you're a stranger to him. That in fact, you don't really want to do God's will. You don't want to... Live in step with a divine creator over all things. You you really just want to get your own way. And he says, the people who actually do the will of the Father, those are the people I know. Apart from that, I don't know them at all. Think of it this way: you might come to Jesus and and recognize all, all the benefits that we that again, we we espouse and are encouraged by every week. And you might come to Jesus and say, I want all the benefits. Right? You might sit in that seat and you might, even from there, like, I want all the benefits of Jesus that that guy is promising, right? I want all of that. I want forgiveness. I want peace. I want hope. I want joy. I want eternal life. I want deliverance from judgment. I want all of those things. But oh, by the way, I want to maintain control over my life. I want all of that. I and mean, that sounds great. You want eternal life? Do you want to not go to hell? Yes, please? That sounds great. And notice, you don't have to know or love or treasure Jesus or his will to want. Those things. That's just self-preservation. And Jesus says there's a way that you ought to be provoked that calls into question whether or not you're doing something because you know and love and trust Jesus or whether you're trying to maintain control and get the benefits he offers. He's saying you have to abandon your own will. You can't have your will and hope in Jesus at the same time. You either get your will and lose the hope that Jesus offers in knowing Him, or you'll look to Jesus, find hope, and abandon your own will. But notice that the mark of knowing Jesus and doing this will it isn't necessarily the kind of success or competence that the people who come to Jesus in verse 21 through 23 with their resume expect. But I just want to let that provoke you into what he would say is a necessary amount of doubt. Call it into question. Because what he's saying is that the people who know him want to know whether or not they are in his will or out of it. Do you hear what he's implying there? Like, the, the people who, who know him and trust him will want these kinds of provocations to take place. After all, if you know someone, maybe someone in your life you love dearly, wouldn't you want to know if there was something that had come between you? If you really loved them, wouldn't you want to know if they are holding something against you? If you really valued them? And you really cherish their relationship. You wouldn't say, well, I just don't want to know. I want to live blind. I'm going to live in this superficial reality where I think we're friends, but down deep we're not. And Jesus is implying here that those who would know him would welcome these kinds of interrogations, this kind of provocation. And so what that means is that one of the marks of doing his will and knowing him deeply is Teachability. Do you want to know the things that might be hindering you from knowing Jesus deeply? I mean, honestly, do you really want to know your own sin, doubt, skepticism, rebellion that, that would keep you from knowing Jesus and enjoying Him forever? Do you want to know? Or do you avoid opportunities for people to give you that kind of constructive criticism? Are you quick to admit when you're wrong? Are you humble and teachable and eager to be shaped? Do you respond well to people calling out the things that may or may not be hindering you from knowing Jesus more deeply? Because after all, if there's any part in us who know Jesus that that is out of step with him and his will, we want to know it. I don't want to avoid it. Think of it. If you want to gather together together as the, as the gathered congregation of Jesus, but, but you don't want to know about the areas of your life that are out of step with the Lord's will, then please be warned. You are, Jesus says here, in grave, grave danger. As he said last week, you're in a big popular way. Most people would say, yeah, me too. I don't want to know about that kind of stuff. I got to get up on a Sunday morning for something like that. I want to get up on a Sunday morning and be told things I want to hear. For those of you who are part of Connection Church, if if you want to be in a gospel community, have those kinds of friendships and meaningful relationships that, that through the Holy Spirit we follow Jesus together, but you don't want your sin brought to light, then beware. You want the appearance of piety, but you don't want to be His. So be provoked. The people with the right doctrine, which is a good thing, we would fight for, the people with... Forever for Jesus. Lord, Lord, is a good thing. We would want that. We would want to inspire that. And the people that, in this case, have, have an impressive resume of serving Jesus, we would, we would love that. We, we'd celebrate that. And yet notice that while those things in their absence is evidence that you and I don't know Jesus or want his will at all, it doesn't mean that, that just because they're present that we know him and follow him. And that ought to provoke you. think of it this way. I'll offer maybe just a kind of a practical encouragement. A necessary amount of doubt is invited here, and I just want to, maybe this will apply to some of you, but not the rest, and maybe this is the kind of question you've lived your whole life with. I, am I a Christian? Am I saved? Am I one of the elect, right? Am I loved by God? Am I the one who has heard? Do I, do I know the shepherd's voice, right? These are, this is the language of the New Testament, and maybe you've struggled with that. If even right now, you're like, I don't know if I'm a Christian or not. I hear you saying that, but I'm, I'm not even sure. Well, here, here's, the, here's the way I would encourage you. Paul tells the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12, 3, 3 says that no one can say that Jesus is accursed if they're under the power of the Holy Spirit. Kind of in line with what Jesus would say. Just, you're better off rejecting this outright than you are just kind of meddling with it. But Paul tells the Corinthians who are in doubt, he says, but no one can say that Jesus is Lord unless it's by the Holy Spirit. And so here's what I want to encourage you for those, here's the necessary amount of doubt in which you ought to come to this and say, Jesus, I don't, just again, the the depths of your heart ought to cry like, Jesus, I I don't want to miss out on you. I want to know you. Paul would say, I want to forsake all other things but to be known, right? To be found in him, to be known by Jesus, right? In the depths of your heart, you would cry out, like, I, I, I want to know. If, if there's something that's keeping me from knowing the depths and the joy and glory of Jesus, I want to know that. But if you're in this other spot where you just kind of live with a doubt and you don't know, I want to encourage you, as, as Paul would tell the Corinthians, no one gets to say Jesus is genuinely Lord unless the Holy Spirit is provoking it. We'll see this in, in elsewhere in the Gospel of Matthew even, when Peter says, you're the Son of God, you're the, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. Even Jesus says, hey, it's not flesh and blood that revealed this to you, Simon, Barjona. This, this is not something you just discovered because you're wicked smart, right? This, this is something only that God the Father would reveal about his son, Jesus Christ. And so here's the thing. People who are not saved never wander around wondering whether or not they're saved. They don't care. So if you're coming to this room as a doubter, maybe you're not, like, I don't, like, I don't, maybe maybe, maybe he's talking to me, I don't know, maybe, and and you have those kinds of questions, I wonder if I'm loved by God and known by God and accepted by God, I just want you to know the evidence of your wonder, like, your wonder and the presence of your wonder is evidence that he's introducing himself to you. I want you to be comforted by that. Like, the presence of doubt in general isn't evidence of anything other than you're human. There's an unnecessary amount of doubt here, but Jesus is happy to invite and provoke a necessary amount of doubt. To where you and I would would say, I want to be with you and know you to the end. I don't want to be the person who comes to you and Jesus says, behold, I've never even known you. So friend, be encouraged. If you wonder, let that be be just a a little ray of hope for you. Your doubt and your wondering is evidence that the Holy Spirit's at work in you. Because frankly, and here's the harsh reality of that. If you're wondering about Jesus, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. You're not that smart. <laughs> right? You, no, one, no, one, no, like no one with a with a, a, a chalkboard and equations around, oh, Jesus is Lord. That's, I, I have solved the puzzle. Jesus is Lord, right? This is not a rational conclusion. This is a supernatural reality that is, it's not solved or understood. It's something we apprehend and behold by faith. And so if you're wondering about Jesus this morning, I want to encourage you you're hearing him. You're already starting to know him. Because the, the, the people who came here and, and listed their list of accomplishments, we see if this is a picture of what it means to not know Jesus, then, then in verse 24, pretty profound and yet simple illustration of those who know Jesus through the storm, I think you, you'll find this to be true. There, there are those that are building their lives on something about them. And then there are those who are building their lives on something about him. Again, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man to build his house on a rock. So connect the dots even between those two things. What was the thing that those people came, in verse 21 through verse 23, what was the thing that those people came to Jesus with, right? What was the thing they led with? Jesus, look at all the stuff we've done. Look, look, at, look, at, look at my resume. Right? And, and, and he's saying like, in essence, what you're saying to me is your grounds of being, as it were here, the, the foundation of your existence, the foundation upon which you have built your life is ultimately you, as opposed to A person who hears these words of Jesus, begins to apprehend them by faith, and and begin to live them out as a person who's renounced such a thing. Now, look, this is self-evidently true, you know, in your other relationships, right? Maybe in dating or in in sort of intimate relationships. Uh, You don't lead with your resume. You lead with intimate knowledge, right? Like, I wouldn't ask my wife on a date with my resume. Well, uh, I'm going to give you a few reasons why you should go on a date with me one if you will look at my bank account i seem to i, I can hold employment i seem to be a right i've I steady dependable person two uh, right you just like this there's no person in the world is like oh <laughs> it spoke to my heart i'm melted i want to be with you forever right there's something intangible that we know is true in knowledge right or, or true in like intimate knowledge of a person intimate knowledge is when you cease to do those things and when you have this kind of intangible trust that defies our ability to even explain. In fact, if you're still if if in the resume, I might have just helped someone, maybe in, in the weird world of dating. Uh, but like if you're still in kind of that resume stage, it, it shows that you don't really have intimate trust. You're still trying to prove yourself. And notice what he's saying here is like, if you come to me still trying to prove yourself, you don't know me at all. If you think you can talk me, Jesus says, into loving and caring for you, you have never met me. And he says that evidently a storm is coming. Now notice what he's implied by this already. Did you, did you hear the, it ought to scare you in verse 22. Again, this ought to provoke everyone. We're like, on that day, it says, so, so what is that day? Well, well that's a, in the prophetic tradition, that, that day, that, that coming day is the day of judgment. And on that day, evidently, Jesus says that, that who a person is and how they know him is going to be called to account. And, and he says then so he connects himself even with the authority of God himself. Because up there he says, did you catch in the first section of those who don't know God, he says that if you, if, you, if you know the will and do the will of the Father, then you know me. If you don't do the will of the Father, then you don't know me. And then in verse 24 he says, if you do the things I say then you're on steady ground. And if you don't, did you hear what he's doing? He is equating his own words with the authority of God and the judgment that God will exercise over all that is broken and sinful and rebellious in the world. And he says, if you come to me with a life built on you, and you don't even know me, you don't even know what I'm like. I never knew you. They come to him as judge, knowing there is a judgment day. And they find out that the most important thing they could have had was to know Jesus. Think of it this way. You and I are, when we know Jesus and know what he has done for us, we stop feeling the need to prove ourselves. We are freed from the need to come to him or anyone else with a resume. With a list of, here's what I believe, here's what I'm excited about, and here's my list of accomplishments. When you know and trust Jesus, you are free, and this is powerful. If you know and are known by Jesus, then you are free to come to him the only way you can, which is empty-handed. When you really, know, I mean, when you know Jesus, when you see him for who he is, when you see him welcoming the outsider, when you, when you see him rebuking those who would oppress, and when you, when you, when you see him putting himself in harm's way for, for people to help them in a way that they could never help themselves, when you see that and when you know that, you don't come to him offering things, you come to him in freedom and with empty hands. Woe to the person, Jesus says, who comes to him thinking they can offer something to him. They ultimately will experience the greatest loss. And that is to know and be in the presence of Jesus. Think of it this way. If the greatest loss that you and I could experience is not what you think. The greatest loss, Jesus says, you could experience is him. To not know him to not experience his presence. And this is profound for you in the room. Maybe I want to provoke you with these, the, the statements that Jesus is making here. If you're in this room, you're like, I don't know if I'm a Christian. What does it mean to be a Christian? Or maybe just, just kind of an outsider looking in. I'm, so, I'm glad you're here. You're, you're always welcome here. And we need to hear Jesus' words. If we know that knowing him is the most important thing, and apart from him, we're lost, then it means that the thing that you've been looking for in every other place in your life is actually Jesus. Like, the thing that you've been pursuing, I don't know what that is for you, right? The the approval or acceptance or control or comfort or stability or, right? The thing that you pour all of your resources in, right? Once I get this, I'm good. That thing that you're actually looking for is Jesus, and I want to invite you to consider the possibility that you're just using those things to get what Jesus freely offers. That thing you've been looking for, it's Jesus. And here's the encouragement. You could lose that thing, but if you have Jesus, he's all you need. Knowing him is the most important thing. Apart from that, you're lost. These, and, and this is the provocative statement. These highly religious people did not know Jesus. And so you're left wondering, do I really know him? Does he know me? Well, the encouragement from verse 24 is that if you're coming to Jesus, building yourself or building your own life or existence on something that's pointing to you, then you haven't heard the sufficiency and the greatness of who Jesus is, that he has come to give you everything you need, that he has come to welcome you into the family of the Father, not just into the household, but into the family. And when you hear those words, and then, do you hear them? You respond to them. You actually start to live that way. Then when, not if, when the rains and the storms come, you won't be found wanting. So remember, remember what we, we said. There's, there's like, up to this point, there's kind of two different ways, and they may look the same, but they end in two different places. Up to this point, we saw that there's, there may be even two different ways Of being. Look alike on the surface. One is a hypocrite, one is not. There's two different trees, he told us last week. And then in the end, they look the same until the fruit starts to ripen. And lastly, he says, then there's two different houses. And they look the same. They look identical. Could have been the same builder. And they look the same. And yet under the surface, the foundation upon which they are built couldn't be more different. And here's what I want to encourage you. Let, let just like, this is, this is something profound. It says the rain, for both houses, same situation rain fell, floods came, winds blew, and beat against that house. This is metaphorical poetic language that I invite you to be encouraged by. I know for many of us, that's probably how we would describe our lives at times, right? The rains are coming, the floods are rising. The winds are blowing and I feel beat up. Felt that way? Here's, here's, the, here's the encouragement I want to give you. That's actually a grace. Uh, for, for those of you in the room and your house, is, your house is built upon Jesus and his finished work for you, it's actually a grace that the storm comes to either affirm that, encourage you in that, or show you what, it, what you're really living for. And, and I know it won't feel like it, right? It never does. Why, why would a beating feel good, right? Um, and, and yet he's, he's evidently saying, I, I love you too much to let you go on thinking. I love you too much to let you go on living and building your life on something else. I, I'm, I'm pleased to allow a storm, because some of you know this, that's just, there's, I, I wish there was another way. I wish there was a way to know the, the genuineness of our faith, right, the depth of our character, the truth about our integrity or the level of hypocrisy. I wish there was another way other than suffering and storms to have that revealed, but there isn't. And many of you know that. And many of you know one of the truest things about you were revealed at some of the lowest points of your life. And it will either show that underneath all of those things is a hopeless sand, or it will reveal that the thing and the person upon which you have built your life is faithful and true. You've heard me say this before, one of my mentors, shared, mentors says it this way, it's like he, says, I, uh, he shares a story that he hit rock bottom, but he was so thankful because when he hit rock bottom, he learned that there was a rock at the bottom. And so for many of us, we hear this story, and, and, and I know it, it starts to provoke us with fear, like, oh, I don't want that, I don't want that. And yet, I want, I want to encourage you, you will find at the bottom of a life built upon Jesus is something sturdy, something rock solid. You may not see that now. You may just feel the beating. But God has never abandoned the righteous. God has never forgotten or forsaken his own. So, what does that teach us? Where does that leave us? Well, verse 28 and 29, kind of Matthew not wanting to leave us wondering, helps us to see. If you're thinking like, well, what do I do? How do I respond to this provocative teaching of Jesus? Matthew tells us because it's two things. He says, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were, number one, they were astonished. More literally, they were provoked, as I said last week. And and this is really interesting. Most of the commentaries will point this out. It's an imperfect tense, so it's not like one time they were provoked. That is, the the tense of this verb is that they were living in an ongoing state of provocation. They They were living in a perpetual state of astonishment. They heard what Jesus said, and they were like, well, that's really provocative, and then walked back to their lives. They heard the words of Jesus, and 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 they became immediately astonished, but they were, at that point, put into a state of perpetual astonishment. It was constantly provoking. It was, in an ongoing way, they were being astonished at what he was saying. There's a second thing, because he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So, friend, do it's, it's clear that many people have been in the world impressed by what Jesus says, but what we find here is that his teaching was different from anything that these people had heard before. So question, do you find yourself in an ongoing state of provocation by Jesus? Do you find yourself being continually astonished at what Jesus would say to you? What he's done for you and what he says about you and what he says to you? We've said this before, but you can be charmed by the gospel. You can be charmed by the good news of Jesus and not changed by it. And this is profoundly provocative, is it not? That the person who could be so close to what it looks like the epitome of a life of faith could be a stranger to it altogether. Do you hear his words and as we find here, recognize authority authority in it? I, I want to break down that word. As we saw this when we were in the book of Judges, right? There, There's like, we, we don't like authority, and we typically just think it's kind of awful, but but just even think in the, in the basis sense, imagine imagine if you and a friend were, were at like at a book club, and you're both reading the same book, and maybe you came across a part of this book, and you were like, you know, maybe it was, imagine it was something from Shakespeare, right? And you're, you're, you're reading Romeo and Juliet, right? And you're like, well, I think it means this, and I think it means this, and you're arguing about what this really means, and, and what it's supposed to, like, how we're supposed to take it. Imagine then, and William Shakespeare walks in. And at that moment, he's like, this is what this means. Right? In that moment, that person has author a T. The author steps, and at that point, you're like, well, I actually, you don't do that. So friend, do you allow Jesus to speak as the author a T in your life? Does it do you trust Him that He knows the way to life? Is He, as, as the rest of the New Testament will say, He's the one in whom we have our being. In Him and by Him and through Him and for Him are all things. Does He have that kind of authority? Is He allowed to not only provoke you, but does he allow, is He allowed to speak authoritatively in your life? Or do you argue with Him? Yeah, but. Does He speak in your life as the author of the good life? Later we find, it, is he the author and perfecter or finisher of your faith? Because at the close of this sermon, Jesus leaves us with a crisis. You can either come to him with a list of your own accomplishments, or you can know him. We share this regularly with gospel community leaders, and I would share it with you. We saw this a few weeks ago. It's kind of an axiom that's based on this, is you can, you can be impressive or you can be known. You can't be both. Right? All the people who are impressed with you, they don't know you. And all the people who know you, not impressed with you. And we. that's actually a gift. That's a good thing. Because you can either come to Jesus with a list of impressive traits and attributes and accomplishments, or you can know him. You can come with him, come to him with a list of good works, or you can trust him to have all the good works accomplished on your behalf. The people who know you and care about you don't need you to recite your resume to them. Because in the end, if I know Jesus and I'm known by Jesus, then I'm free to come to him empty-handed. I'm free to build my life on him and nothing else. I'm free to make decisions based on him and nothing else. So think of it this way. There is nothing greater than knowing and being known by Jesus. There's nothing greater in just a moment, we're going to respond in faith by, by, as Christians, invited to celebrate communion, and this is not an accident. But we come, and this is this is, and maybe it's, it's providential at this time of day, even we come to the table hungry, right? As one of your, some of you present next to you, their stomachs already growling, right? But we come to the table empty-handed. We don't come to something to offer, come with something to offer to Jesus. We come in need. And it's then and only then, when we freely come to him with nothing to offer, we know him as he is. That's those who receives, right? he's the one who receives the weary, the brokenhearted. He's the one who receives the contrite in heart. Right? He opposes the proud, but he shows grace and mercy and draws near to the humble. And we come to the table. And as we see, then we come to the throne of judgment. The judgment of storms that will, ex- that will exist in this life and the judgment that will come on this day when all things will be weighed and measured. And in the same way we come to the table, we see a picture of how you and I come to judgment. Empty-handed. I've got nothing. Notice, it, it was their list of religious behaviors that merited Jesus sending them away and calling them workers of lawlessness. And same as that we saw uh, previously in one of the other passages, we, the same thing we see at the end of that second passage, right? The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And, and you, you'd like to, Jesus to say, and it fell. And, but but you, it, you know, there's, there's a way out. He just says, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Right? And it fell. And it was, it, was, it was awful. And so think, on one hand, be provoked. Be provoked at the invitation to come to Jesus, not with a list of your own merits and not with things that you can build with your own hands, but be provoked that you are invited to come to Jesus empty-handed. Be provoked by these two things. One, be honest what Jesus is saying about your sin and your uh, Your and, and and the unrighteousness, the perfection that He demands. Be honest and realize that as you're invited to come to Him empty-handed, be provoked because you don't have anything to offer. But on the other hand, on the other hand, be provoked because of who Jesus is, because of His perfect obedience and righteous life attributed to you by faith, because of His sacrificial and atoning death merited to you by grace. And by his victorious resurrection. Friend, on one hand, come to him empty-handed because you don't have anything to offer. But on the other hand, come to him empty-handed because you don't need anything else. You have nothing to offer, but friend, hear the good news. You don't need anything. Be provoked by that. There is nothing greater than knowing and being known by Jesus and knowing that what he has done for us and what he promises for us is, as we see here, astonishing, life-changing, and at the same time, authoritative. Are you astonished? Are you provoked? Is he the author of all things in your life? Are you free from meeting the law's demands because you know that Jesus has met them for you? Are you free from the need to impress because of how impressive Jesus really is? We need to be changed in our very nature. And I want to ask you, do you know him? Have you seen him? Have you heard his provocative and astonishing words? Have you seen what he's like? Have you seen him being assaulted and mocked and betrayed by the crowds? Have you seen him taking false accusations that you and I deserve? Have you seen him taking your place on an old rugged cross? Have you heard him talk about you and advocate For you from that cross? Have you heard him say to you personally, Father, forgive him or her? They don't know what they're doing. Have you heard him speak directly to you when from the cross he says, It is finished? Have you seen him alive? Has he met you in your sorrow and pain? Has he encountered you in your grief? Has he comforted you with the presence of his spirit? Ask yourself this. If he walked in the room right now, what would you say or do? I mean, what if he walked in the room right now? And what you do in response is the most important thing about you. What would you do if he walked in the room? Would you come to him with a list of complaints? Would you come to him and say, I I have sound doctrine. I believe rightly about you. I'm really passionate about you. I'm really excited about what you're doing. Would you come to him and List a resume of things that you've accomplished on His behalf and even in His name? Would you throw yourself at His feet? I think I would just run to Him, and I'm don't, I, don't, I don't know, like, like, like the Apostle John. I think I would just hug Him. I'm so glad you're here. I don't want to go on another moment without you. I don't think I could take another Minute without you. I don't think I could take news of another mass shooting without you. I don't think I could make it another day without you. I'm so glad you're here. Because here's what we're invited to do our response in faith is to come to a table and meet him. Not to meet him with a list of demands that you and I have achieved, but to come to him with a blank slate. That he has bought and paid for with his own broken body and shed blood with nothing but hunger and thirst and here's the beauty he meets us there and he says to you and to me i'm the bread of life i'm the living water and he gives his own body to be broken and his own blood to be spilt so that you would not be a stranger but you would find at that table welcome does that provoke you? Does that astonish you? Do you hear him saying these words directly to you? Don't take my word for it, friend. If you have any doubt in your mind, go to him. Go to him. You can speak directly to him. I dare you. Again, the most skeptical, cynical person in the room, I dare you. I dare you. You doubt everything, doubt your doubt. I dare you to doubt your doubt and go to him. I dare you to cry out to him and see what happens. I dare you to test him and to see if he's the rock upon which you can build your whole life and find him faithful and true. Let's respond now. Let's pray to him and ask for him to do that for us. God, thank you so much that you are sufficient. You have given us everything that we need, everything that we could desire. You have provided for us in Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for the provocative news that there is nothing greater than to know you and be known by you. Lord, we confess that there are all these other things that we really think are what's important. We, we strive after so many other things and God, we confess that, we confess how silly they really do seem when we, when we think about coming to you as a, a gracious redeemer to seek and save the lost as though we can somehow contribute or add to it. God, help us to see that all we have to contribute to this relationship is sin. And yet, help us to see the joy in knowing that's all we need to contribute. You have come as a friend of sinners. Hear us As we cry out to you, give us the mercy and grace we need to see you for who you really are, to know you, to behold you, to see how beautiful you are in your life and perfect obedience to the Father, to behold your shameful death so that you can identify with the sufferer and your victorious resurrection so that you can lead us all the way through the valley of death. Thank you that you are this for us. Help us to behold that and treasure that and be satisfied and filled with that. We ask that in your name. Amen.